right, if you have your Bibles, once you open with me to Colossians chapter 3, we will be uh, continuing there uh, in our study. Today we'll be looking at uh, verse 12. Uh, and as you are, as you're turning there, uh, clothing makes a, uh, makes a statement about us. Uh, the, uh, the world makes a big deal uh, about appearance. Uh, the most, one of the most famous statements about clothing, uh, according to uh, worldly wisdom, and there's, there's some truth to it, but uh, the idea of dressing for the job that you want rather than the job that you have. Right? That, that the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you present yourself will, will make an impact upon people. And if we were, if we were truly honest, we, we treat people differently based upon the way that they dress. Uh, when, when we see someone dressed in, in all blue, uh, carrying a badge and a gun, uh, how do we typically uh, treat them uh, w- with respect? Because we, we usually identify them as a, uh, as a police officer. Uh, when we see somebody uh, dressed in, in scrubs and, and wearing a, a stethoscope, uh, we usually identify that person as uh, a doctor or a nurse, somebody in, in the medical field. Uh, but, but what type of clothing should identify us as Christians? Uh, what type of clothing should mark us as, as followers of Christ? Uh, and, and that is what we will see today. And, and Paul is going to be instructing the Colossians in how, how they are to clothe themselves. Uh, but he's not going to be talking about their, their outward appearance. Uh, he's he's going to say, you need to clothe yourself. But then he's going to begin to speak about interner, internal characteristics. Uh, he's going to be speaking about how they should clothe their character. Uh, how, what they should put on, uh, what virtues uh, they sh- that uh, they need to begin to foster in their life because that will help them to, to put on Christ-likeness. That will help uh, us as a church if we all put these uh, clothing on uh, to, uh, to foster unity and harmony within our church body. Uh, and uh, and Paul, Paul's argument as, he, as we look at Colossians chapter 3 is going to be one that, that builds progressively. If you look with me at, at the beginning of of chapter 3. Paul is no longer uh, addressing the, the false teaching that was present in the, the town of Colossae. He, he did that in chapter 2, but now he's, he's shifted over to, to giving them general direction uh, as, as Christians, as a church. This would be applicable to all churches at, at all times, and, and this is what he says. He lays out the general principles. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he gives these the, the big general commands of, hey, begin to seek the things that are above and uh, to set your mind or to think the things that are above. Uh, and then he gets into the specifics in the next paragraph, verses uh, 5 through 11, where he tells them what they need to put off. Of, hey, if you're, if, because you are now living in Christ and united with him and you've been raised with him, this is now what you need to put off. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, 
slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. See, Paul, Paul addresses, of, hey, if, you, if you're really going to begin to, to put off uh, sin, you're going to need to do it at the, at the heart level. That's where we saw five li- or two lists of five uh, vices that in verses 5 and 8, and that Paul says, hey, you must, you must put these to death and you must put these off uh, if you're really going to deal with sin. And if you don't deal with it at the heart level uh, regarding sexual sins and then social sins, the sins of the tongue, uh, if you don't put those off at the heart level, you're, they're going to continue to fester in your life. And now uh, what Paul is going to begin to do in, in this next paragraph from verses 12 to 17, he's going to say, so now that you put all of those things off, this is what you need to put on. Uh, and the idea of putting on here is literally clothe yourself. You need to put on this new wardrobe. You need to put these types of characteristics on because of what has already taken place in your life. Verse 9 and 10 talked about uh, things that had, that had happened already. You, you have put aside the old self and have put on the new self, uh, and now you are being renewed. And because that is a reality, now what you have already experienced uh, in, in truth, you need to begin to act that way, uh, act according to what is already true. Uh, and, and this morning, what we're going to see is two aspects of this new wardrobe that we are to put on in Christ. As those who have believed in Christ, this is how we now need to dress. Uh, as those who have believed in Christ, this is how other people should identify us. Not by the way that we dress outwardly, but how uh, we clothe our character inwardly. And that will be apparent to all. So what we're going to see this morning is uh, the details of uh, our wardrobe change and then the reason for our wardrobe change. Uh, and we will see that in verse 12 where Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now we're going to say verse 13 till next week, uh, because there's a lot there. But understand that the, they are connected. If you look at the back of the, the handout that you were given, uh, you, you'll see kind of a, a laying out of this sentence. of It's going to tell us what we should do, what we should put on, uh, why we should put it on because of who we are in Christ, uh, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then it's going to say how we should do that, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And we'll talk about that next week. But this week we're just going to look at the, the details of the wardrobe change uh, and the reason for the wardrobe change. But let's, so let's, let's look at that first portion of the verse that says, put on then. We, we have this, uh, this instruction, again, to, to clothe ourselves. And it's an urgent command. Uh, and it's an action that we are called to, to perform ourselves. Uh, and uh, as we saw last week, uh, that, uh, we, the commands in Scripture, sometimes they are ones that we are supposed to, to perform upon others. Uh, we, we love our neighbor. That's us uh, acting upon somebody else. Uh, sometimes uh, we are being acted upon by God, which is what we saw last week. Of We are constantly being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. That is God working upon us. 
And then there are commands in Scripture that are given where we are supposed to, to work upon ourselves. Uh, we are to act uh, in our own lives, and this is one of those commands. We are to actively work on putting on uh, or clothing ourselves with these virtues. This is going to be uh, our responsibility. And there's going to be this list of five virtues. So we're going to look at the, the, this command of, of put on then, and then there's kind of a parenthetical statement that we're going to skip over for now. And then Paul lists off uh, five virtues. Uh, and, and these virtues refer to, a, to a, big, a general quality of, hey, this is what should characterize your life, rather than uh, anything specific or concrete examples of that quality. So he's talking the big picture here. Uh, and it's interesting because these virtues are all seen in either God the Father or God the Son. And, and three of the five, uh, are, are seen, are mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So this, the, these virtues are who God is at their core, and we are called to, to put on Christ-likeness. We are called to be like Him. So let's, let, let's look at this list of, of virtues uh, here. Uh, number one, we are to put on compassionate hearts. Uh, the idea is a heart characterized by compassion, or, or literally, uh, it's, a, it's bowels. It's, it's not the word for heart. It's the, the idea of your, your innards, your intestines, of uh, at the internal person uh, of you, you should have uh, an inner person that is compassionate. Uh, that If you have been made new in Christ, you should now have compassion upon others. Uh, this is seen in Jesus in, in Mark 6.34 which reads, when, when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. See, when we see other people in need, uh, we should feel compassion towards them and a desire to help them meet that need. What does Jesus see here in this verse? He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he begin to do? He begins to teach them. He begins to guide and direct them so that they are no longer sheep wandering around in the wilderness, but they have a direction and a shepherd to, to follow and to care for them. Uh, and we, we need this, I, this concept of being compassionate people. Uh, this should characterize us. In, in the story of the Good Samaritan, which of the three, the, the, the Pharisee, uh, the Levite, or uh, the Samaritan, had compassion upon his neighbor? Uh, it, it was the Samaritan, right? That, that's what compassion looks like. Of uh, even if it's uh, if it's inconvenient to us, we we look for ways to to identify with people in their need, in their hurting, and we come alongside them. Uh, and a compassionate heart, uh, as you look at your little diagram there, a compassionate heart will then naturally lead to kindness, right? A compassionate heart is is what happens internal. Uh, that's what goes on inside of us, and it manifests itself in kindness directed towards other people. Uh, and kindness is, is the quality of being helpful or beneficial. Now, and this word was used to, uh, to describe wine that, that as it grows older with age, it loses its harshness. Uh, it kind of mellows out. Uh, and that, this is the idea of in, our, in kindness, as, as we put on a compassionate heart, uh, over time, all of our rough edges that, are, that come across to other people, they should be <clears throat> smoothed over, that they lose their sharpness, uh, because we begin to act with others in kindness rather than harshness. Uh, this, would be, this would be the opposite of something that's mentioned in verse 8. In verse 8, as, as Paul lists these social sins, he says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, 
malice and slander, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. And we talked about the idea of malice being a, a desire to hurt others. Now, and when we are angry in our heart, then we see outbursts of anger, then there can begin within our heart to be a desire to, to harm others or to, to make them feel bad. And, and kindness would be the opposite of malice. Rather than having a desire to hurt others within my heart, I have a desire to, to do them good. Let me, let me act for their benefit. Uh, and we see this in, in God the Father in Luke 6.35, where Jesus says, But love your enemies... And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he, speaking of God the Father, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Of God is, is kind to those who are ungrateful and evil towards him. He is kind to those who are ungrateful and evil towards their fellow man. Uh, the kindness of God, <clears throat> as we will continue to look at here, brings us to repentance. Uh, that is what works upon our heart and ultimately transforms our lives. But this is what we should be putting on and should be demonstrating in our own lives. <clears throat> Thirdly, we will see humility, uh, which is lowliness of mind or, or modesty. Uh, this is usually coupled with the first two characteristics because uh, if you're a humble person, if you think lowly of yourself, you're, you're probably going to treat others with respect uh, and with dignity. You're going to have compassion upon others. But the prideful person, who's most important? They are. And, and so that they have no thought of how they can do good and act kindly to others. It's all about them because they are what is most important. Uh, and this is, this is contrasted. If, if you look at earlier in Colossians, uh, when Paul was dealing with uh, the false teachers and the false teaching in, in verse 18 and then in verse 23 he talks about uh, asceticism, uh, which the, the word there is literally humility. See, what characterized these false teachers was a, was a false humility. They, they, were, they were humble and they were proud of it. Uh, they, they were happy to tell everybody else how humble they were uh, to announce it from the rooftops and on the street corners. Uh, and is that really humility? No. Uh, they don't need to, you don't need to tell people you're humble. Just be humble. Uh, and, and the ultimate example of humility is actually what we celebrate during this season. Uh, and, and this is best described, actually, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Jesus is the ultimate example of what humility looks like. And Paul uses him as this example in Philippians 2. Beginning in verse 5, Paul writes... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. It, it's amazing, as I, as I hold my, my seven-month-old son, uh, what's amazing to me is I, as I realized that, man, I was once his age. Uh, I, I was once this small. Uh, I was once in need of someone to, to tote me around everywhere. Uh, I, I was in need of somebody to care for me. And that reality, not only me, but every single one of us was at some point a little child dependent upon others. And when you just think about that, that's humbling, right? 
You know, what's even more humbling is to think that Jesus, the, the creator of all things, as we have already seen in Colossians, uh, the creator and sustainer of all things, humbled himself that even though he is equal with God, he took on the form of a man. He, he came and he was like a little baby. Not like, he was a little baby. Uh, let me correct my theology there. Uh, he, he was a little child. He humbled himself to the point of that the creator would come and be a baby who would need the help uh, of humans uh, to be cared for and, and looked after. He is the ultimate example of humility uh, and lowering his own status for the benefit of others. Further, when you, when you walk through, when you walk through a, a wheat field, uh, it's the ears of wheat with the most grain that droop the most. Uh, that if we are truly the, the most spiritual, the most uh, mature Christians, we should be the most humble. Uh, we don't need to broadcast our maturity to others, but we, we, we broadcast our maturity through service to others. Uh, that, that those who are humble will look to, to act for the benefit of those around them without uh, getting uh, acknowledgement uh, and the, uh, the pats on the back for it. Now, that's what humility looks like. Uh, you, you act without uh, expecting anything in return, any acknowledgement. Uh, and that is what uh, we are called to do. We are called to put on humility. Uh, the fourth virtue that we see is, is meekness. It's the quality of not being overly impressed uh, by a sense of one's self-importance. You see that it is, uh, again, connected with humility because humility is, is shown in the heart. And then meekness is demonstrated to others uh, in the way that we conduct ourselves. It's not all about our self-importance. Uh, synonyms for this would be gentleness, courtesy, considerateness, or meekness. And this idea of meekness is, is kind of frowned upon in our world today, is it not? Uh, a Christian humorist named uh, J. Upton Dixon said he was writing a book called Cower Power. Uh, and that he had founded a group uh, for submissive people uh, with the acronym DORMATS, uh, which stands for Dependent Organization uh, of Really Meek and Timid Souls. Uh, the motto of the group would be, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everyone. Uh, and their symbol would be a yellow traffic light. Uh, and uh, he was going to put the, the, the group together until somebody objected, and then he decided not to. Uh, but, but, but this is funny because it, it, it hits a nerve. Uh, because the world treats, treats meekness and gentleness as if it was spinelessness uh, or cowardice. But in, in the Christian economy, meekness is, is the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting injury. In the Christian economy, uh, you, you are willing to, to be inconvenienced in the service of others. Uh, John MacArthur says that the gentle person knows he is a sinner among sinners, and is willing to suffer the burdens others' sin may impose upon him. Another pastor, R. Kent Hughes, says that behind true gentleness is a steel-like strength. For the supreme characteristic of the meek man or woman is that he or she is under perfect control. Meekness is strength under control. Jesus himself described himself as, as being gentle, as being meek. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your soul. So in, in what way was, was the character of Christ gentle? In what way is he strength under control? Well, did Jesus have to suffer any of the things that he suffered in his trial? No. But, but he, he submitted to that in meekness, in gentleness, because it was going to be for the benefit of others. He, he could have stopped that at any moment in time. What did he tell Herod? If I wanted to, I could have, what, 12 legions uh, of angels come down, uh, and, and this could be taken care of really quick. But he submitted to that strength under control. That is what meekness is, and that, that's the difference between the, the worldly way of thinking of, hey, this is just cowardice, uh, but meekness can be, no, I, I'm going to, even though I could exert my rights right now, I'm willing to, uh, to suffer this for the benefit of others. And the last virtue on the list is, is patience. Patient endurance, long-suffering, for, forbearance. Uh, patience is the opposite of, of bitterness and revenge, again, that we saw uh, at the end of verse 8, uh, the idea of slander and obscene talk where you, you bear a grudge against others uh, and then act upon that. Uh, patience, uh, this, this is one, uh, one pastor, William Barclay, says, patience is the spirit which never loses uh, its patience uh, with its fellow men. Uh, their foolishness and their unteachability never drive uh, them to cynicism or despair. Their insults and their ill treatment never drive it to bitterness or wrath, meaning that no matter how anybody else acts upon you, if they sin against you, you are patient and long-suffering towards them in response. Uh, and the ultimate example of this is God the Father. Listen to Romans 2.4. Paul writes, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What Paul is saying there is when we understand how frequently we have sinned against God from the time that we were born all the way to our current uh, state, when we realize how often and how frequently we have sinned uh, against him, our creator, what is it we see that we deserve? We deserve his judgment. We, we see our rebellion for what it is. But, but what has God done in response? He has been patient with us. He has been kind toward us. And when we see that and understand that, Paul is saying, when you, we truly see and understand the patience and kindness of God, that will turn us to repentance. Because when, when we see that God could have judged us immediately, and he didn't, how should we feel? Thankful, grateful. Uh, and that is what will motivate us to, to turn to him in worship. Listen also to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying, I'm the worst of sinners, and God has been patient to me, with me to show others that he is patient. Uh, and, and that's what we need to understand as well, that, that as God is patient with us, we need to be open and honest with God's patience towards us as we are sinful. Uh, and that can help us proclaim the gospel to others as we, we speak of God's patience with us. Now, now, all five of these 
of these virtues, if you, if you notice them, can only be worn in, in community, in, in relationships with others. Because it, it's easy to think compassionately, uh, but it's more difficult to act compassionately towards those around you. It's easy to be humble and meek if no one else is around, right? Uh, but when others look down upon you for your humility and gentleness, uh, or uh, when they sin against us, uh, it's easy to, to discard humility uh, and gentleness and begin to respond sinfully. Well, I'm going to show that, you're, that I'm right and that you're wrong. Uh, I'm, I'm going to show that, uh, that you sinned against me, and I'm going to prove that. Now, the easiest way to be patient with others is also to have nobody else around, right? Uh, it's really easy for me to be patient and long-suffering when I'm the only person uh, in the room. But, but we need to understand that we become better Christians in relationship with other people. Now, you'll have plenty of opportunities to clothe yourself in these virtues as you spend time in your homes, uh, in your neighborhoods, in your dorms, uh, at your workplace, at your school, and believe it or not, also most prevalently in our church. Uh, and, and as you think of each of, uh, of those settings, you might be thinking, well, well if, I, if I stop and, and help my neighbor every time I see that they're in need, I'm going to be majorly inconvenienced. Right? That, that's going to make me late to work. That may make me late to dinner sometimes when I'm on my way home. Or you might be thinking, I, I can't possibly be patient with my, my little brother. Pastor Thomas, you don't know my little brother or sister. They just push all of my buttons. There's no way that I can be patient with them. Or I, I can't clothe myself in humility because my teammates or my coworkers, they'll walk all over me if I'm, if I'm humble. If I don't exert myself and make sure that everybody knows I'm around, I'll, get, I'll be a doormat. And I can't be meek in this argument with my spouse because they might think that they're right and that I'm less right than they are. Uh, not wrong, uh, but, but less right. I, I can't be meek in that situation. But, but the reality is that the very things that we think keep us from putting on these virtues are our opportunities to put on these virtues, right? Uh, we can only demonstrate compassion uh, when others are in need, and most likely it's going to be inconvenient for us. The only time we can be patient with others is when we are tempted to be impatient. <laughs> when, when something unexpected comes in, that's when we have the opportunity to be patient. And the best time for us to humble ourselves is on those occasions when we are tempted to boast or be prideful. That, that's when we need to humble ourselves. When, when we feel the temptation to let everybody else know how great we are. And the only time you can really submit to others in meekness is when you disagree with them, right? It's really easy to, to submit to someone that you always agree with, uh, but when, when ideas clash, when, when there's a disagreement, uh, that's when, you, when, when somebody has to, to submit. Uh, and, and that's when we get to put on meekness. And the best time to be kind to others is when they have been harsh with you. So how, how do we begin to, to grow in this? How do we begin to, to put on this new wardrobe that, that Paul lays out for us here, these five virtues? Well, number one, I think we, we need to begin to seek these virtues. That's what Paul says in, in Colossians 3.1, right? We need to begin to seek 
heavenly things. We need to seek the things that are above. So we need to begin to value these virtues in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, we need to see them as this is what is most important. This is what I need to, to desire within my heart. And then, so we need to seek them, and then we need to begin to think them. Now, we need to begin to, uh, to think about these virtues, and that's Colossians 3, 2. We're called to, to seek uh, and set our minds upon the things that are above. Uh, when I was uh, playing football in college, we would, we would have meetings after meetings after meetings in addition to practice. Uh, and when we would be in those meetings, uh, our coach would, would have us do what he called mental repetitions. Uh, we, we would visualize a play, a scenario on the field. If he, he'd give us this play and here's what the defense is doing and then say, how are you going to respond? And we would take those, those mental repetitions in advance so that when that situation came up in the game, we would know how we should respond. So we should think about each of these situations and how we can clothe ourselves with a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and uh, patience. We need to, to think about that. So what does that look like? Well, uh, the next time I'm in an argument with my sibling or roommate or spouse uh, and they are insisting upon having their way, rather than battling against them, I'll put on meekness and I will show preference to them. See, and if I begin to think about that ahead of time, if I plan ahead of time, when the moment comes, what am I ready for? I'm ready to do that. Or what about this? The next time I see my elderly neighbor in need of help, I'll stop whatever I'm doing, even at my own inconvenience, in order to help and serve her. Or the next time someone at church is subtly boasting about their accomplishments, rather than beginning a round of one-upsmanship, uh, I'll put on humility and not announce my own accomplishments uh, to my, my group. And that's what those mental repetitions ahead of time. Where, where, do you, where are you tempted to put on the opposite of what we should be putting on? When are you tempted to put on those vices? Uh, think through those opportunities that you have and then say, okay, how do I game plan? How do I take some mental reps here so that I'm prepared uh, to respond rightly and put on these virtues when the moment arises? Plan out what you're going to do. So we must seek, seek these things, think these things, and then we need to pray. We need to pray for the Spirit to guide you. Uh, we need to pray for the Spirit's strengthening, uh, that, that He would help you to respond rightly when the moment arises. Uh, and then when the, when the moment arises, after we've, uh, we've sought these things, thought these things, prayed for these things, what's the last step? We have to act. We have to actually do it. Uh, sometimes the game plan looks great when it's up on the chalkboard, or I guess the whiteboard now. Sometimes it looks great up there, but then you get out to the game field, and you're actually in that situation, and everything can go out the window. So we need to make sure we actually follow through on the things that we plan uh, and pray upon. Uh, and as we, as we do this, as we seek, think, pray, and then act in accordance with these virtues, uh, we will begin to, to grow in Christ's likeness. We will begin to be more and more like Christ our Savior. And while it's important for us to, to put these virtues on, what's also really important is the motive behind the putting on of these virtues. And that's what Paul addresses uh, in this verse as well. Uh, and that, now that, that parenthetical statement that we skipped over, I'd like to, like to return to that because that's the reason for the wardrobe change. That is the reason that we should put on these virtues. Let's look again at the beginning of verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved. See, see that, is the, that is the reason that Paul gives of why we should put on these virtues, why, why we should clothe ourselves in this way, because in these verses, God is not issuing commands for us to keep in order to save ourselves. See, see this list of virtues isn't uh, the measuring stick for us to, to hold ourselves up to and say, well, if I don't meet that, I, I'm not saved. See, it's not a do these things and you will earn your way into heaven. It, it, it is in no way that. See, our obedience to these, uh, putting on of these virtues is, is not done in a desperate hope of saving ourselves, but it is done in thankful uh, obedience to the God who has already saved us and acted upon our lives. One pastor says that gospel commands, gospel imperatives are possible because of gospel grace. And the, the gospel that motivates these, this command to put on these virtues is this reality that, that God has chosen us and has a desire for us to be holy and for him to bestow upon us Love And the main emphasis here is that we are God's chosen people. And then those two adjectives describe us as a people, that we are holy and beloved. Throughout Scripture, we see that God has a plan to save a people for himself. That's the idea behind this, these, these words of chosen ones or literally elect ones. Uh, turn with me uh, to, to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, as, as you're turning there, we can, we can describe the big picture of the Bible, the big theme of the Bible as redemption in Christ for the glory of God, that God is working throughout history to, to save a people for himself, and he's going to do that through his son, Jesus Christ. And he is going to save us, not because we've earned it, not because we are so good, but rather he is doing that so that he would get all the glory, honor, and praise. Listen to to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is God's plan for the ages, to save a people for himself and to bring glory to his name. You don't have to turn there, but listen also to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this reality that, that we are chosen by God is not something that is based upon anything that we have done, but it's based upon God's desire to save. Well, we see this in the Old Testament in Israel. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, God, God is going to say to Israel, Hey, I've chosen you, not because you're the, the greatest and the best, but because I have a desire to sh- put my, show my love to the world. Listen to uh, these verses in Deuteronomy. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so you see, in the Old Testament, God chose Israel and saved Israel. Uh, He saved them before he then called them to obey him. If you think of just the the book of Exodus, uh, the beginning of the book, the people of Israel are enslaved. Uh, in Egypt, they, they are they are slaves. They're they're having to make bricks and then use the bricks to build. Uh, they are enslaved. And do they rescue themselves? No. God saves them. God rescues them. He shows His love to them first and foremost. And then after after saving them, after miraculously bringing them forth with the ten plagues and the, the Red Sea, then He calls them to Mount Sinai and says, "Okay, now that I've saved you, this is who I want you to be." That I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19. Uh, then he, he calls them uh, to be a people for himself. And that is what God does with us as well. That he saves us and then says, now I want you to be like this. I'm calling you to be this uh, people. Uh, listen to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You'll notice a lot of the same language is used now to describe uh, the church. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's saying is, hey, uh, there was a point in time where, where you were estranged from God, but he saved you so that you might call others from darkness to light. That you were saved with a purpose. You were saved so that God could show his love to you and so that you could be set apart. That's the idea of being holy, sanctified, set apart for a specific use. And, and we can't lose sight of this fact, that, that what should motivate us to be like Christ, what should motivate us to put on these virtues is... God's love for us. We, but oftentimes when we, when we read about the love of God in the Bible, it, it somehow lost its power uh, upon our lives. And, and, and listen, listen to this. Uh, so there was, there was once a man named Private First Class John Eddington. Uh, and he had a newborn daughter, Margaret. Uh, and he held her in his arms shortly before he was deployed 
to a Nazi-controlled uh, Europe in 1944. And, and before his departure, he composed a poignant three-page letter uh, expressing his intense love for his little baby Peggy, as he called her. And almost immediately upon arriving in Italy in 1944, John Eddington, private first class, was killed in action. While his wife uh, kept that precious letter in a box in the attic for the day when Peggy would be old enough to read it for herself, uh, as time passed, Mrs. Eddington forgot that 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 letter was there. And she never mentioned that letter from her late husband to her daughter. And consequently, Peggy grew up never knowing how much her father loved her. But in 2014, 70 years later, someone rummaging through Peggy's late mother's possessions discovered the box containing a letter addressed to my darling daughter. The letter was delivered to its rightful recipient, and when Peggy, now 70 years old, read the letter, she learned for the first time what had been in her father's heart when he got news that he was leaving for the war. He assured her that she would always be on his mind. I love you so much, John had written. Your mother and daddy are going to give you everything we can. We will always give you all the love we have. He concluded with the words, I love you with all my heart and soul forever and ever. Your loving daddy. Do you think Peggy was unmoved by that? No way. Uh, Unimaginable. But how often as Christians do we, do we read about our Father's love for us and we walk away unmoved? We walk away unaffected when the reality is that the love of God that God has shown to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, that He sent His Son to die on our behalf so that we could be reconciled with Him, that love should, should move us at all times and it should motivate us at all times to respond to him in thankfulness, in, in, in worship, in love. And we can't lose sight of that. Even just those little few words that we, that we, we tend to just, just rush over. Okay, God, tell me what to do. Well, what are the do's and the don'ts? But no, we can't pass over those simple words that say we are chosen by God to be a people for him, holy, set apart, and beloved, ones that he could show his love and affections towards. And God wants us to know and understand how he chose us in eternity past to adopt us, to to bring us into his family, to set his love upon us and make us a holy people. We need to know that and remember that. And now in faith, we need to believe and embrace that truth, realizing that that not only will motivate us to to put on these virtues, but but in our our deepest and darkest days, in, in the moments of those most difficult trials, What is it that we need to remember? That God loves us. That God cares for us. That he sent his son for us. And and that transforms our motivation for obedience, doesn't it? Because now we are not trying to, to earn the favor of a wrathful God, but we are responding to a father who who already loves us. And has demonstrated that love in so many ways already. 
See, God's loving election of us removes us from that, that rat race, that hamster wheel of trying to save ourselves through our own efforts. The love of God, his grace extended to us, is our only hope of salvation. But some of you might be thinking, how? God says that, that he's chosen some. How do I know that I'm chosen? How do I know that? Well, well I would say don't, don't put the cart before the horse. See, in Scripture, uh, while that is a, a deep and edifying truth, God calls first and foremost, he calls everybody to answer another question. Not am I chosen, but will I look to Jesus Christ alone as my hope for salvation? That is the question that we must all answer first and foremost. Listen, and again, that has been seen throughout the pages of Scripture. Listen to these verses from an Old Testament book, Isaiah the prophet. 55.1, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is saying, come to me, even if you have no money. And if you have no money, guess what you can still do in the economy of God? You can still buy. You can still be fed. You can still come and eat, even without any money to bring forward. A few verses later in that chapter, Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So so rather than than first wrestling with this question of, am I chosen? We, We first need to wrestle with, Do I trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation? Am I trusting in myself to earn my way to heaven? Am I trusting in somebody else to save me? Or am I trusting in Christ? We must put the horse in front of the cart. Uh, That that is the the, the bigger point of Scripture. Uh, And this morning we've seen that the details of of this wardrobe change that, that God is calling us to and the reason for our wardrobe change. Uh, We've seen these these virtues that we are called to to clothe ourselves with. And we've seen that the love of God should be our motivation for putting this new wardrobe upon us. And and it's this time of year, during this Advent season, that we we come to celebrate uh, Christ's first coming. uh, that, That God became man, that God made himself low, that he emptied himself to come... And save us. And that is the biggest demonstration of God's love for us. That he would send his son. Uh, and, and what do we love to do during this time of year? Is get together with family. Uh, to, to have some food. To have a big feast and celebrate. right? Uh, and to, to have fellowship and community uh, around food. And, and that's a foretaste of something to come. And... and we get to do those, something similar every, every second Sunday of the month here at Ambassador. We partake of communion together. Uh, and afterwards, we have our, our fellowship lunch uh, where we, we come and partake of uh, the elements that, that Christ commanded us to partake of. Uh, and then we, we share a great meal and a great time together afterwards. And, and whenever we come together to partake of this communion, it's a, it's a small foreshadowing of something greater. Uh, and that something greater is the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
when, when we will see and understand that the love of God that, that he has bestowed upon us, it's working towards this end, that we would have fellowship with him, that we are the, the, the children and in the family of God, and this is what we are all, this is what history is working towards. Listen to Matthew 22, verses 2 to 4. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my, fatted, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Uh, and Jesus is speaking of a wedding feast that will take place in heaven. Uh, this wedding feast is seen again or spoken of again in Revelation 19. John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. See, every time we partake of, of communion together, it's a small foretaste, it's a small foreshadowing of that marriage supper with Christ that ultimate celebration of, of fellowship and community, now that we are in heaven and partaking with him, this is just a little foretaste of that. Uh, and, and as the men are going to come forward and, and begin to, uh, to pass out uh, th- these elements that we're going to partake of together, I uh, want you to take a little bit of time uh, and, and think privately in your own heart this morning. Uh, because as we, as we partake of, of these elements... We are saying that we are united as a body. We are calling and remembering Christ's past death on our behalf. We are remembering uh, our present fellowship with him, and we are looking forward to his future return. And we want to get our hearts right uh, with God in preparation for that, and we want to make sure our hearts are, are right with others. So uh, as we, we pass these elements through, these elements are, are for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. Only. This is intended to be for believers. So if, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Christ for salvation, we would just ask that you would allow these elements to pass by. Uh, but then as, uh, as the music plays and as these are passed out, I want you to, to ask in your heart before you and the Lord, hey, is, is there any sin that you need to confess before God? Do, do you need to take care of some business between you and him? Uh, is there any sin separating you from uh, somebody else, and you need to go and pursue reconciliation? And then think about what we've seen today, and ask the Lord to help you put on these virtues, but mostly pray and praise God for the love that he has shown to us in Christ his Son.